Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, I said in the early service, you know, when I hear that, it makes me never want to try to sing again. <laughs> I give up. That's it. But what an amazing and talented and gifted family we have here at Nations Church. Come on, can you put your hands together for not only Rachel, but the worship team and the choir and the band. What an amazing job you guys have done. Thank you for sharing your gifts and your talents with, with all of us. Amen. Well, we have um, a great morning lined up here. I believe the Lord's going to speak to us. I do want to just uh, recognize a few visitors that are here with us. Actually, they were in the first service and they're back again for the second service. So they must have liked it. Bert Farias is here and Joel Crumpton, great evangelists. We love you guys. Um, I know that we also have graduates of the boot camp that are back from the field. I think David Rottermel is here. I think Dennis Artashevsky is here. I think, um, who else? Looking around the room. Uh, Evan, Evan Threlkeld and Madeline, somewhere around here. It's good to see all of you guys. I told you, every Sunday, it's like a big family reunion. And we get to see those that are coming and going, like a modern-day Antioch. And it's just so wonderful to hear the reports of what God is doing around the world. Even uh, while I was waiting to come out, I, I got onto social media and saw reports from R Rwanda of thousands of kids being saved and kids' crusades right now. So um, we just thank the Lord for all that he's doing. Also, what about that Breslin family? Aren't they incredible? And um, Maddie and Gavin, 13 years old. If you'd have told me they were 23, I would have believed it. So articulate, so intelligent, and the whole family serving. I heard David is the starting shortstop for the football, or not football, the softball team. And uh, by the way, our softball team did really good, right? First place. Woo! We actually have two softball teams. I don't know if we want to get into that part. I'll leave that for another day. And, and Gracie, I think... Gracie, so articulate, you could, just, you could have just stayed up here and preached. I would have been very happy to listen. But uh, what a joy. I want, to, um, I want to share with you something that is on my heart this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 2. And you know, um, I am, I'm an evangelist as my primary sort of ministry activity, the pastoral thing is a recent addition to that. And, you know, as an evangelist, the way that you preach, and of course, if you're in the boot camp, you know we, we talk about this and we teach this, you know, you don't get to preach as an evangelist to the same crowd very many times. When you're a pastor, you're preaching different messages to the same crowd. As an evangelist, you're always preaching to a new crowd. So you have your your five smooth stones. You, you have those messages that you know will cut. And you very often are preaching toward a particular outcome, like a, a call to action, which usually ends up with people coming to Christ, which is, which is uh, the greatest joy and the greatest privilege that anyone could have. But I often find myself, even in a pastoral context, asking myself, what, what am I trying to get at here? What am I driving towards? What is the point? What is the call to action? How does this apply to our everyday lives? How does it apply to our relationship with God? 
And, you know, very often, even in, as you know, because you're, you're here, even in this pastoral context, it ends up in the altars, right? Which is great. We need that very often. This morning, I, I find myself driving towards a very different kind of end goal. And it's just worship. It's, it's adoration of the king. And, you know, it... I forget who said it, I think it, it might have been C.S. Lewis that said that evangelism exists because worship does not. Really the end goal of, even of evangelism is worship. That people would turn their eyes to Jesus and that we would behold him in his beauty and that our hearts would be broken down before him in awe of him and stirred to serve him and to love him as never before. And so this morning I, I, wanna, I wanna take a piece, a, a fragment, a part of the Christmas story, and I want to hold it up for you as a meditation, and I'm praying that it will draw our hearts into worship before the Lord. You know, the story of Christmas, the story of the coming of Christ, I find very often as Christians, especially as the years go on, it becomes more and more difficult for us to, um, to not take it for granted. You know what I mean? Because when, when you have something that's so familiar to you, and you've heard it so many times, and it's always thought of in the context of the holidays and the traditions, you kind of put it right next to, you know, the nativity scene, the Christmas tree, the, you know, nutcracker, the gingerbread man, they kind of all go in the same category. And Jesus and his birth and his coming just becomes this story that we tell at Christmas time. But it's more than that. It, it is the, the most amazing, mind-boggling reality that God came to us. And he didn't just come to us like some ghost from another dimension. He put on human flesh and stepped down into our shoes. And he walked with us and he talked with us and he bled for us and he died for us and he rose for us. It is the greatest story. It is the greatest revelation that any human being could have. And, and one of the things that I found is that you take these great revelations, like the incarnation, or what we celebrate at Easter, the resurrection. And, and sometimes what happens is because they are connected to those holidays, we never even talk about those things apart from their holidays. And so it's very important that especially at a time like this, we allow the truth and the reality of what Jesus did when he came to settle deeply into our hearts. Amen? One of my favorite songs for Christmas is a song that I'm sure you all know and love. It's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is um, an ancient song. The original version was in Latin, and it was Veni Emmanuel. Its origins, its roots go back possibly as far as the 8th century. And so it's not a, it's not a new song at all. It's it's something that has gone through years and years of being loved and appreciated and accepted by the church. And it carries a message that's so powerful. I'm sure you all know at least the first verse. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel will come to you, O Israel. And I want to focus this morning on that word Emmanuel. Because 
It is possibly one of the most significant words in the entire Bible. In fact, I would submit to you that if you can grasp what the word Emmanuel means, it will unlock the rest of the scriptures to you. If you don't understand what the word Emmanuel means, if you don't understand the revelation contained within that name, the Bible is a random collection of stories that seem to really have no point. The entirety of the biblical message is wrapped up and accessed by the revelation that God is with us. Of course, that word Emmanuel originally comes to us from a prophecy from Isaiah in the book of Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah was prophesying here to Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. And it's a story that's interesting, but I won't bother with it here because it will take us in a different direction. and It's quite lengthy. What's important for the purpose of our discussion this morning is that Matthew in the New Testament sees this ancient prophecy that Isaiah gave as finding a more profound and ultimate fulfillment in the incarnation of Christ. And so what, I, what Matthew does is he reaches back into the Old Testament. He takes that prophecy that Isaiah gave, he appropriates it for a New Testament application and then applies it to Jesus. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. After telling the story of how Jesus was immaculately conceived by a virgin named Mary, he says in, in Matthew 1, 22, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet who said, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in parentheses he puts, which means God with us. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that word Emmanuel is the key. The virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son is a supernatural sign, but what is the sign pointing to? Well, for Isaiah, in its original context, it was a sign pointing to something that God was going to do in Israel and in Judah. But Matthew sees that there is a deeper, more profound prophetic message in the meaning of the word Emmanuel itself. And that's why, unlike Isaiah, who doesn't tell you what the name Emmanuel means, Matthew, when he quotes that passage, he adds this parenthetical statement, he will call, you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that one notion, that one concept is, in one sense, what the entire Bible is about. The Bible is, and I know it's more than this, I know you could approach this from different angles, but in one sense, the entirety of Scripture is the story of God wanting to dwell with man. This is what God has been after since the very beginning. If you don't get this, you're going to miss most of what the Bible is about. God had already created in the six days all kinds of birds and animals and mammals and creatures of every different kind. He wasn't looking for another animal. What God was looking for when he created man in his image, breathing into his very nostrils the breath of life, was a creature with whom he could have fellowship and communion, with whom he could have an unbroken relationship. So that's what was happening in the Garden of Eden. And then, as you know, sin entered into the scenario and brought a separation between God and man. Isaiah 59, 2 describes the situation like this. Isaiah says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that 
he will not hear. So Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden. They were driven away from the presence of the Lord. And the outcome of that event, which we call in Christian theology the fall, the outcome of that is all the evil and all the sin and all the pain and all the suffering and all of the death that has ever befallen man in the generations to follow. And so, as you know, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that very quickly the human race became corrupt. I mean, the fall of Adam and Eve, this is in the first three chapters of Genesis. By Genesis 6, God is about to destroy the human race because it's so wicked. And that's what we talked about last week. That's the story of Noah. God literally said, I am going to wipe the slate clean and start over. So he sends a flood. He wipes out the human race through a flood, but he preserves the seed of the human race with one man and his family. That was Noah in the ark. And then, of course, after Noah, Noah's posterity, God approaches a man by the name of Abraham and basically says, Abraham, I want to bless the entire world through your through your inheritance, through your children in generations to come. And God's desire for Abraham was that through Abraham's children who would become a covenant people with God, eventually the fellowship of God with man could be restored. This was the whole point. Why did God pick Israel? It wasn't because God liked Jews more than other people. It's because God had a plan to restore fellowship to the human race. And the Jewish people were, a, were an instrument. They were a vessel through which God had determined to bring about this reconciliation. And so you might remember, if you've studied the 12 tribes of Israel, there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, was set apart from the other tribes as a priestly tribe. So their job, their role, was to be mediators on behalf of the rest of the tribes of Israel between them and God. So they were the priests. And the tribe of Levi was a kind of microcosm of what the nation of Israel as a whole was supposed to be for the entire world. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests. Their job, their role was to interface between God and the human race. And we see this taking shape almost immediately when Israel's delivered from Egypt. Moses, of course, you know the whole showdown with Pharaoh. They cross the Red Sea. They go out into the wilderness. They haven't even arrived in the promised land yet. And God says in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 to Moses, let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. You see, this is what God is always after. I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you. I want a place, a home, a resting place for my presence to be with, his, with my people. And so what was that sanctuary? Well, the Bible describes it to us. It was a big tent called the tabernacle, and it served as a place for their worship. And if you, if you read through um, the book of Leviticus, and you read the instructions that God gave to Moses about how to build the tabernacle, dare I say it, it will be probably some of the most boring Bible reading you'll ever encounter. Because it's just page after page, chapter after chapter of meticulous, detailed instructions that seem so petty. You have no idea why it's in the Bible. But here's what you have to understand. The reason God gave those specific instructions is that God literally gave Moses a design for the tabernacle that was intended to be a physical 
prototype of God's heavenly abode. That's why it was so specific. It was an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. It was like a low resolution model of what God was dwelling in in heaven. Why would he do this? Well, think of it like this. How many of you enjoy video games? Okay, be honest. I know a lot more of you like them than are raising your hands right now. Now imagine how fun would video games be if you had to type in JavaScript on a black screen in order to play. I I dare say very few of us would be video game players. So what's happened is that programmers, what they have done is they've taken the ones and zeros of digital uh, computer language and they have turned that into a two-dimensional digital representation of what we find in the real world. So when you play a video game, one of the reasons that you enjoy it is that it kind of reminds you of things in the real world. So when you see a door in a video game, you know what that is because there's doors in the real world. When you see a drain pipe on the ground that you're going to use as a weapon, you know to pick it up because that's what you would do in the real world. Maybe not. So the the video game is a low-resolution representation of the real world that allows you to interface with the game. You understand? And so what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle... Was, was kind of like a video game in that sense. It was a rough, low-resolution reproduction of God's reality that would allow God to interface with humanity. It wasn't actually heaven, but it was close enough that God was willing to and able to be in the game in some sense. And so that's what would happen. Once the tabernacle was built according to those very specific instructions, the glory of God manifested in the tabernacle, in this particular room called the Holy of Holies, where there was a box called the Ark of the Covenant that had golden cherubims with their wings almost touching. And between the wings of those cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, the manifestation called the Shekinah glory of God was dwelling there. God was dwelling in the midst of his people through that tabernacle. But the tabernacle was a portable tent-like structure And once Israel had gone into the promised land, David had a desire in his heart, put there by the Holy Spirit, to build a permanent structure, not a tent, but but a building that could serve as a dwelling place for God's presence. And so, of course, it was David's son, King Solomon, that actually ended up building the temple. And once again, when the temple was finished at the dedication, the glory of God came down and filled that temple. Let me just read this for you. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Verses 1 through 3, now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. Imagine this scene, the dedication of the temple. It consumed the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house, and the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement. And they worshiped and they praised the Lord saying, for his good, for his mercy endures forever. So the glory of the Lord rested in that place, the Holy of Holies, in Solomon's temple for hundreds of years. We don't know exactly how long. But what we do know is that even though there was this manifestation of God's glory in the midst of the people there in the temple, 
Israel continued to rebel and to sin against God. And so when you read the Old Testament, there's this cycle that repeats over and over. God blesses the people. They become complacent. They sin. God punishes them. They repent. They're restored. They grow complacent again. They sin again. They're punished again. It happens over and over and over again. And it finally leads up to this climax where Israel's going to be punished in a way that is far more severe than ever, anything they've ever experienced. What's going to happen is the Babylonians are going to come down and they're going to destroy the temple. They're going to capture the people of Israel, many of them, and carry them off into captivity back to Babylon. And so before that happened, before this destruction of the physical temple, before the Babylonians came in, before they took captives back to Babylon, there was something that happened that was far more tragic. This is what it was. We read about it in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10, that the glory of God that had dwelt in the midst of his people ever since they had been roaming in the wilderness departed from Israel. I won't take the time to read it in Ezekiel 10 because it's quite lengthy, but basically Ezekiel describes this scene in vivid language and shows how he actually watched the glory of the Lord leave. He says that it it went from the Holy of Holies and it moved to the threshold of the temple. And then it went out of the temple through the eastern gate up to the Mount of Olives and then over the mountain and it disappeared. And Ichabod, the glory had departed from Israel. What a tragedy. This was far worse than the physical destruction of the temple. This was far worse than the Israel being taken captive, the manifest presence of God that defined the people of God was no longer there. It was missing. But all was not lost because God always has a plan, doesn't he? More than 100 years after the destruction of the first temple, the prophet Malachi says in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What a prophecy. You see, there are two things that we learn from this prophecy, that the people of Israel learned from this prophecy that were extremely encouraging. Number one, it says the Lord would send his messenger. So what that meant is the Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer of Israel is coming. But number two, it said that he will return to his temple, which means that that temple that had been destroyed is going to be rebuilt. It's another way of saying God is going to restore everything that was lost. But it gets even better because the prophet Haggai says in Haggai 2.6, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. So not only is God going to restore Israel to the land, not only is the temple going to be rebuilt, but the glory of that second temple is going to cause the previous one to pale in compar- by comparison. But here's the problem. It didn't quite happen like that. Because we know, for example, in Ezra 3.12, it tells us how when they were laying the foundations of that second temple, in Jerusalem, the older Jewish people that had been around to see the first temple, when they saw that foundation being laid, they began to weep because it was so pitiful by comparison. Look at 
Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Ezra 3.12. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. It was pathetic. Compared to the original, it was shameful. It caused them to weep. But there was a bigger problem than the size and the grandeur of that physical temple. Because when it was built and when it was dedicated, no fire fell like it had fallen in the first temple. There was no Shekinah glory of God filling the second temple. They didn't even have the physical Ark of the Covenant. And yes, God had restored some of his people to the land, but it seems as though God had decided not to take up residence with them. So they had the trappings. They had the form. They had the building. They had the system. But they had no glory. They had no presence. And what that meant is that the very thing that gave all of the rest of that stuff meaning was missing. Because let me tell you something, you can have religion, but without glory, without presence, without the reality of the presence of God abiding in the midst of his people, it's nothing. It's meaningless, it's foolishness. And this meant that the prophecies were unfulfilled. And that meant that that Israel was still waiting for the coming of its Messiah and for the return of God's glory. Now all of that has just been to lead us up to this point right here. Are you ready for this? Okay, turn with me to Luke chapter two. You said, what does all this have to do with Christmas? Oh man, I'm about to show you. Luke chapter two, and I want for us to put this in the screen and we're gonna read this all together in the same translation. And do not whisper this, let's read it out loud because it's so amazing. With all of that background now, here is the coming of Christ. Verse four, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths And placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, 
which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told about this child. Do you see it? Do you see what's happening here? That glory that had been prophesied to return to Israel, the same glory, that luminescence, that Shekinah, that Ezekiel watched leave the Holy of Holies and go out through the threshold and cross over the Mount of Olives and disappear that was prophesied to return, that had not come back with the construction of that second temple. On the night that Jesus was born, angels showed up on the hillside and announced the glory of God has returned to Israel again. Hallelujah! But wait, it gets even better, if you can believe that. Because remember that prophecy that I told you about from Haggai? He said that the glory of the second temple would be greater than the glory of the first. But remember, the, the first temple was pretty glorious. Fire fell from heaven and consumed sacrifices. The manifestation of God's Shekinah glory appeared there, so thick, so heavy, that the priests were unable to stand to minister, and the people seeing it fell on their faces, and the Bible says they put their faces in the pavement, and they worshiped because it was so overwhelming. But the second temple had seen none of those things. There was no glory. There was no fire. There was no supernatural echo from heaven. And even the physical structure and even the missing of the Ark of the Covenant, it was all so inferior that it caused the people who knew better to weep. So how could the second temple ever exceed the glory of the first? Well, let's go back to Luke. Let's keep reading. After the Lord appeared to the shepherds in the field, look at what it says. Verse 22. Then came, let's read together, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory, the glory, the glory of your people, Israel. It is, it's almost impossible to articulate the significance of what it means that Jesus came into this world. Let's return to my video game analogy that I used before. 
Remember, God had used a tabernacle, and later he had used a temple as a way for his glory to interface with humanity. We live in a very different realm from God. He's not a physical being like we are. We have no way in the natural to relate to what his reality is any more than your video game character can understand your life. And so God had created a way through this means, through this vessel, this vehicle called the temple, he had had a way to interface with humanity. But when Jesus came into the world, it was a totally different paradigm. It wasn't like God sitting in front of a computer screen interacting with us through some piece of software. What happened in the incarnation is that God stepped personally into the game. He came inside the code. He entered into our sphere. He put on human flesh so that he could feel what we feel, so he could hear what we hear, so he could see. He was even tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And when he died, it wasn't some apparition. It was a physical human body that died on the cross. And it was blood like yours and like mine that was shed on that cross. The sacrifice was real. The pain was real. There's no way to even begin to fathom how incredible this is. Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse, or, or sorry, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we looked upon his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see this? The eternal transcendent, everlasting, divine, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent word of God became flesh. And, and literally the word in the, in the Greek is tabernacled. As if you were to pitch a tent, he put on flesh like the tabernacle had skins of animals. Jesus put on the skin of a man. And it was no longer just an interface. God was with us. He was really here. He was filled with grace and truth. And John says, we beheld his glory. So much so that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hallelujah. If you could get this, you would never stop shouting. You would never stop praising. You would never stop thanking. No wonder, no wonder, no wonder the angels couldn't hold it back and they appeared there on the hillsides outside of Bethlehem and said, glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Oh, in the city of David, a savior has been born to you. His name is Jesus. He is Christ. He is the Lord. Hallelujah. Such a marvel this world had never known. Such a spectacle of creation had never been conceived. Nothing on earth could ever compare to the miracle that God wrapped himself in human flesh and made his home among us. That is what we are celebrating. We are celebrating God with us. Let me tell you something. I've, I've studied the religions of the world. I've seen 
what they have to offer, I can tell you nobody has an offer like this on the table. I promise you. This is the, it's so good. Somebody said it's too good to be true. No, it's so good it has to be true. It's so good nobody could have ever thought of this. Only God could have thought of this. Hallelujah. And so here is the reality that what, what does it mean for us this morning? It means that right here in this room, God is not some faraway, ethereal, ephemeral, wafting power in the universe, some energy somewhere. He is personal. He is real. And not only is he personal and real, but he is here. He's with us. So if you're in this room this morning and you don't know him, if there's sin that has separated you from God, like Isaiah talked about, if you feel that sense of being separated from his presence, oh, my brothers and my sisters, I have good news for you. He is with us. He is not far away. He is right here. The moment that you confess him, the moment you call upon him, he comes. He'll wash you in his blood. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll fill you. And it gets even better. There's a whole other part to this. They were t trying to tell me in the green room, I told them I don't have enough time. Because here's, here's the other side of it, is that the, carnation, the incarnation of Christ into human flesh takes on, has an even greater level. Because Jesus, remember, he said, it's important for you that I go away. Because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit will not come. What does the Holy Spirit do when he comes? He wraps, the Spirit of Christ wraps himself in your flesh and in my flesh. It's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. That's, that is the promise. Christ, not Christ in Mary, Christ in you. Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory.